In this, our first episode, we'll be talking about the cloud. We're going to be covering virtual machines, CoreOS, Docker, Kubernetes, and the future of containers in the cloud. So we look forward to having you along. Visidrix podcast is our bi-monthly opportunity to talk about the technology that keeps us excited about writing software. We'll be bringing you our unique blend of the mundane but useful, interesting, and or occasionally bleeding edge news, tools, tips, and thoughts as we make our way through this crazy technology landscape. For joining us, this is a Visidrix podcast with uh, Perry Birch here and Richie Via from Visidrix, and we've got Kelsey Hightower hanging out here from CoreOS. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we met up at a one of the Go meetups here in Portland a little while back and got to talking shop about uh, some of the stuff we're doing in the UI space and famous JS and, and all that. And, and he got me excited again about Docker and, and CoreOS and Kubernetes and some of the. Those cool technologies that I've been looking at a, a few months back, and, and you know, kind of getting traction again, and, and want to get more information on where the space is at now. So, uh, maybe Kelsey, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, and what your job is in CoreOS. Cool. So, uh, traditionally, I've been a sysadmin for most of my career. Um, so, you're typically, you know, running the server part. Um, I think recently, I've gotten to the world where you know, managing systems so long, you start reading code behind the systems. Um, to know what you're actually deploying, what you're actually troubleshooting. Um, that kind of led me to like learning Python and Java in a previous employer. So why don't developers ever do that in reverse and go in and, and learn the sysops side and help you guys out? I, I think I think most times developers do. I think just over the last decade or two, it's been accustomed that the larger organizations have always had like the dedicated operations team. Uh, you saw that a lot in the QA area as well, right? Oh, Where, yeah, absolutely. You know, you're always paired with, there's a QA team, here's your operations team. It's kind of like having a marketing team and a sales team. Yeah. Um, and that's starting to blend a little bit more, yep. you know, whatever the movement you want to call. But I think, you know, developers have been doing just enough on their laptop, but not necessarily um, things in production. And sometimes most developers don't have access to production. So it usually doesn't go both ways as far as your ability to learn all the skills necessary to glue together the entire system. Absolutely. I, I taught a lot of classes at tech classes where we go in and talk about you know, how do you model your production environment or even your QA environment effectively in your local machine. And I know we're going to be getting into this stuff, but VMs has been one of the things that I've been answering with. And so I'm kind of excited to have another answer that, that seems a little bit more legit. Yeah, I think VMs will always still have a place because, you know, when you get back to bare metal, even though there's a lot of performance gain there, it's still a pain to manage physical servers, right? So no one really wants to wait for a physical server to pixie boot and deal with the complexities of that placement, where's it plug into the network switch? So virtualization still gives us that kind of starting point from where you might want to start building systems, but you know, I think we're gonna talk about containers where oh, yeah. maybe moving the bits around could be a little bit more efficient than packing them in whole virtual machines. Yeah, for sure. It's it's the the size of the virtual machines and all of the, the time delays is kind of some of the stuff we're gonna be talking about, right? Yep. Uh, so speaking of which CoreOS, that's that's your your baby, right? So tell us a little bit about CoreOS and, and what are the killer features in CoreOS? Yeah, so at CoreOS, my official title is Director of Business Development, um, but I do some of everything. So I work closely with marketing, I write a lot of the blog posts, kind of research what people want to know about, making sure that the message is clear from a technical and from the high-level point of view. 
Um, and then on the business side, I do a lot of work with our CEO and founder, uh, Alex Polby. And we do a lot of the sales stuff, a lot of the support stuff, client-facing stuff. And um, the goal that, you know, we're a true startup, like 15 of us total. Um, most of us are engineers. A lot of us write code, even though some of us have a business title. And um, the secret sauce at CoreOS is just simplicity, right? CoreOS made a big bet about a year ago that mm-hmm. all you really need for like modern infrastructure is an OS that's focused on, you know, later version of the kernel, secured by default mainly by having good updates and just enough to run containers, right? So it's not a general purpose Linux distribution like a Debian or a Red Hat based system would be, but it's more focused to say, look, we know that there's a gigantic use case out there for running applications, right? And for most companies, that's the majority of the deployment time is spent with applications. So CoreOS is just designed to have you know, 100 meg plus Linux distribution that gets you to the point where Docker's up and running. And we also believe that people benefit from distributed systems, right? Like mm-hmm. when we say distributed systems, that's a very complex and loaded term. <laughs> and what we want to do is make sure that building a distributed system is easy. So we'll give you things like etcd, like things for cluster configuration is just distributed by default. So it's available on all your machines. Things like Fleet, so you can actually schedule, you know, like a, a, a initial, we call it like a starter scheduler, right? So if you have basic scheduler needs, like I need these five containers running within my cluster, Fleet can do that for you. Okay. And we're just trying to introduce these concepts that most people that are used to distributed systems like Google and Facebook are used to, we're just trying to bring into the masses. Yeah, that's really hard for people or like independent developers, even small development shops to get into. I know actually where I found CoreOS is I was looking specifically for where what, what is a good Linux distribution that I can run on a server. I'm not looking for any client capabilities. I want kind of bare minimum stuff and I, and I want it optimized for just hosting applications. And I ran into stuff like Arch Linux and, and some of those more um, like niche players. And we do a lot of Go in the back end, or our, our back end is almost exclusively Golang. Uh, so I found, stumbled over CoreOS and uh, saw that those thing, two things were synergized well in there. And I was like, oh, this, is, this looks pretty cool. And actually, that was uh, the first Linux OS that I booted up in you know, Google Compute Engine to run Docker when we were experimenting with just a few months ago. So, Yeah, I think, um, and I think CoreOS is basically what sysadmins have been doing for a very long time. Like, if you go to most shops, most sysadmins, if you're using Red Hat, have a kickstart profile that says, look, just start from the bare minimal and only add the things that I need. Mm-hmm. And I think now the things that you need are encapsulated in a Docker container. Exactly. So you don't yeah. necessarily need to install Python and Ruby and tools to manage multiple versions of Python and Ruby. You can almost get away with like, look, we can assume that the contract with the development team and the infrastructure is a container. So we just feel like, hey, let's just give you Docker, and that'll be your primary method of deploying applications. So we've mentioned Docker a few times here. What is Docker? We're talking about containers. We're talking about extracting some of this behavior out of the root operating system and putting it into these container things. So, like, what is that? So I think a lot of people are still trying to wrap their heads around what a container means. I think at the high level, you step back and you just look at it. Um, to me, I look at it as a big static binary, right? Some people like to look at it from it's a virtual machine point of view. So if you look at it from the virtual machine point of view, you look at it as it like a much thinner virtual machine that doesn't carry around as much weight as, let's say, a VMware okay. virtual machine would. So something where I can spin up a bunch of VMs quickly or yeah, a little and bit lighter weight. Yeah, but. and then people resonate with like getting a network IP, um, yeah. getting a different port number, maybe even running SSH in and maybe 20 other processes. So we see some people treat 
a Docker container like a virtual machine, and they stuff everything in one big Docker file, end up with MySQL, Nginx, and their application running on it. And some people will say that's not the way you should do it, but it totally works that way. My viewpoint, and I think a lot of us um, that build these tools, like if you talk to people from Docker, you talk to people from CoreOS, we kind of see uh, containers what they really are. And it's basically a way to do process isolation, right? You have a process and you have a set of namespaces and C groups. And these were all introduced in the Linux kernel. If, if you keep in mind, AIX and Solaris have been doing this for a very long time, <laughs> very good at doing this. Um, but once it came to Linux, now we found a better way of doing isolation from the file system all the way up to the network namespace. So now you can do things like take your process and give it its own view of the world, its own file system. So that gives us this illusion of it being a virtual machine. And once we do this, then we can start packing our dependencies, you know, along with our application. So at the end of the day, I see it as like one big gigantic static binary, right? A lot of people were like, oh, static binaries are a bad idea, especially when, you know, hard drive space was very expensive, right? Right. Um, but in the new world, like, this space is hardly our issue. And what you want is just some self-contained thing where you can just say, run it. Um, and you guys are using Golang, so you guys have that experience, right? You build your app, and mm -hmm. then you can just launch it on the machine without installing Go. You don't care about dependencies, no RVM, no Ruby gems. And I think Docker provides that same thing for every language, right? You, you build your Docker image, and then there you are. You basically have this thing that you can just execute. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of things like I know coming from a VM background, I, I kind of had the same thought. I'm just going to stuff everything inside of the same binaries, and we want to we want to be able to split those things out into separate containers. And uh, I, think, I think one of the things we're going to talk about in a little bit with Kubernetes is how do we connect those. Like, so once we've broken our app apart, you know, we, usually we we call in, we say we know which which port our, our MySQL server our SQL server is running on. We know uh, the, the usernames and passwords and all the configuration stuff is is right at hand, and so we build all these things connected when we break those apart we need some tools to solve that where do I put the information and how do I know where to connect all this stuff up to um, and so yeah so I think that's one of the things that chorus brings to the table so a lot of people don't realize it but when you say etcd it's really a replacement for slash etsy on a unix file system okay. and when you think about slash etsy on a unix file system is where all your configuration stored right it's a big directory where it's like slash ldap the ldap configuration so if you take that into a distributed key value store, it's the same concept, right? You can have keys that are basically directory paths and you can stuff all your configuration there. So a lot of people have been leveraging that concept to make the MySQL config available throughout the entire cluster. So instead of syncing files around, you have a key value store where you can store things. So how does that work? I've got, I'd say I've got like five different uh, Core OS instances running on, I'm assuming like five different machines, right? Mm -hmm. um, so these are non-virtualized. And and I want to push a config out. How do they how do they reach that consensus? How do they distribute that information? Yeah. So etcd's job is is just that. Um, you know, when we say consensus, we're really talking about its failover mode and capabilities. So if you have a five node cluster, ideally you don't want to deal with traditional failover and high availability methods, right? So right. what we used to do is say, hey, here's the virtual IP, and <laughs> we'll tell all of our systems about this virtual IP. If one of our hosts goes down, providing this case the etcd service we would write some scripts that would try to move that VIP to the new master in the network. Well, that's very error prone, right? You may not know what state um, each machine is in. So using a consensus algorithm, in this case for etcd, we use Raft. And the idea with the consensus algorithm and the leader election that you get from Raft protocol is that 
if one of the nodes goes down, the other nodes that are still alive can kind of debate amongst themselves to elect a new leader. Mm -hmm. And once you have that, then you can almost count on etcd being throughout the cluster, right? So mm -hmm. what we do is we install etcd on every machine by default. So to get back to your example, all five nodes would have etcd running on them, and it will be listening on a public IP and localhost. So if you have configuration that you want everyone in the cluster to see, you can just enter into one key space on one of the nodes and automatically it will be made available across the cluster, you know, near real time from our, our kind of our perception. Cool. And yeah, from my little bit of understanding about Raft, it, it handles things like network partitions and, and if you get there's this, this concerns with a uh, with split braining where you know maybe two of those nodes are still talking to each other but the other three are, are off, off isolated and it handles you know understanding about which ones are still around and who gets majority and who actually wins that and yeah and I think we're starting to see that like the new algorithms that are coming out for this stuff try to encapsulate what operations people have been doing for a long time mm -hmm. right when you have a network partition you know it's no longer safe to write anything right so what you do is you try to delay writes until it can sort itself out if you don't have quorum, then you want to wait until maybe another node comes back online, maybe it was rebooted. And we're just trying to automate this whole self-healing process, right? What does it take to have nodes back into a state that they can write? Um, and in the, in the case of etcd, if we have three out of those five nodes available, that's enough to keep writing. When the other two come back up, we know that there's already a master in that cluster, and they'll just sync back up from the master and then just join the cluster later on. Right on. What is the, the delay on that? Has it been a problem you guys, or like the latency on, on keeping that? So it's tunable. I think the biggest problems have been like in the cloud, right? So a lot of people to save money, especially like you guys might be a startup and you're running GoLang. Go doesn't require much resources. So people tend to stick with the smallest instances you know, that they need. But it's very problematic because most cloud providers usually tend to deprioritize the smaller instances. You're going to get slower networking. You're going to get unpredictable latencies. Uh, you can go from... 10 milliseconds one day or one hour one minute to 300 milliseconds all of a sudden. And a lot of times for RAF to be efficient, for you can get these, these elections to happen as soon as there's a failure, you're going to have to have low um, heartbeats and timeouts. So that way the other nodes can de detect failure in the network. Okay. If you're using these smaller instances, you're going to have to bump that up to like a second or more. So, you know, in our eyes, like a second isn't really that yeah. bad, right? But for most distributed systems, that's killer. You want that's to have just quickly, right? So a lot of people have been resolving it by just bumping their timeouts to something that represents your reality. If you're in the cloud and you're not on like their highest performance plans or dedicated networks, you're probably gonna have to compensate for high latencies. So to do that, you have to tune it. So that's just a, usually a big problem people see starting now. It's like distributed systems are really sensitive to latency. So speaking about that, so we've got these cloud server options with GCE and AWS, but there's a lot of other options with rack-hosted things. There's like bare metal implementations, even cloud-based bare metal now, and then there's like hosting your own box. What do you see people using commonly? Um, in, a, in a CoreOS space, one thing we've been really focused on early on is like making sure CoreOS runs everywhere, right? So today that means it's on EC2, it's on GCE, it's on Rackspace, and there's a lot of VPSs that are starting to show up, right? So um, and these VPSs are usually OpenStack-based implementations where um, they may not have the same type of setup that you used to on EC2, but they get many of the things like that from um, uh, OpenStack out of the box. And then we're starting to see other players like Linode, which are, you know, they're not necessarily using OpenStack. They kind of have their own infrastructures and setups. And those are a little bit more challenging because they don't necessarily have the infrastructure that CoreOS kind of assumes, right? So we, we, we assume that we can talk to a metadata service to figure out the instance IP address. Um, things that are a little bit tougher to do 
um, in a traditional setup. But we've been working slowly to fix those things to run well on bare metal. So if you're on a bare metal infrastructure, you won't have a metadata service like you would right. in Amazon or GCE. And in those cases, cloud config has been the thing that kind of makes it all possible across the board. So when we look at today, you know, a lot of people are using it in virtualization, VMware Fusion on your laptop, so you can have kind of CoreOS right there on your dev machine. And then works fine on bare metal. We see a lot of people just like netbooting CoreOS, right? CoreOS is like 100 and something megs. Oh, yeah. You can just netboot it, run it from memory, and just use a scratch disk for persistent containers. And then you see the popular cloud vendors. So I think over the next three or four months, you'll see many of the major VPSs added to the mix as well. You know, your Linos, probably your Digital Oceans, things like that. Well, they'll announce official uh, CoreOS support. Even Microsoft Azure, um, we have CoreOS running there. Not quite officially, but we're working with those guys as well. Awesome. I want to take a quick minute to give a shout out to our partners over at Famous. That's F-A-M-O dot U-S. If you're looking for HTML5 web pages that really scream on mobile and desktop, you should really check this framework out. These guys are actually throwing away all of the DOM, so really not HTML5 after all. Some innovative concepts incorporating JavaScript rendering engines and physics particle engines together to provide seamless smooth transitions and animations that work on both iOS and Android, including some really cool stuff in the Cordova space to provide web-enabled applications delivered to the Android platform without some of the common pitfalls and challenges. If you're looking for a team that knows Famous really well and has actually deployed things to clients, as always, you can contact us at admin, that's A-D-M-I-N, at visitrix.com, V-I-Z-I-D-R-I-X.com. cloud options and obviously we've got these bare metal options now I know one of the things we ran into when we were trying to manage all these docker instances was was getting them configured and talking to each other and we actually ended up moving over to um, Google App Engine for a lot of our projects just to just to take some of that burden off us because like you, you were mentioning earlier we're a pretty small startup and and all the resources are, are, are important for us and so uh, it, it feels a little bit like we've got we had at least in the past this option of you know do it all yourself and there's this, this spectrum where there's a gap in the middle and then we've got app engine coming in that's like kind of we'll do everything for you but with not very much flexibility uh, and I was talking to some people at, at Google I.O., uh, the, from Google people from the cloud services space. They were talking about using some stuff, kind of maybe it was CoreOS or it was in conjunction with you guys to provide some kind of middle ground where we can we can apply some flexibility in the spaces where we want it, but still get some of the goodness of these automated pieces where we, where we don't need that level of control. Uh, what do you see going on in that space? So I think one thing, so I think what you describe is an app engine similar to Heroku. You, you uh-huh. kind of have these passes like platform as a service. And platform for the, as a service works for a lot of people. Um, like you said, there's some flexibility that you're missing. Maybe you do want to make outbound calls from your app itself or the ability to write to a file system. <laughs> and those things aren't possible in a lot of the passes for to, to just keep things simple on their end, right? Whenever you put any type of design constraints, it's much easier to automate knowing what the rules of the game will be, right? And that one makes it really hard for ops teams, right? Like, we don't know what your app's going to do. It's going to try to send mail from its own built-in mail server. <laughs> it's doing all these things, so we have to accommodate that. I think what we're seeing now, even on the pass side, you can see this with Cloud Foundry, where even in their traditional pass model, they're allowing Docker containers to become a first-class primitive. So instead of it being like git push, 
you can just say, here's my Docker container, and I want five of these. And I think even on the GCE side, they have this concept of, if you give us a container, we'll, we'll auto-scale it for you. So we'll do the, all the plumbing behind the scenes to spin up the right VMs that goes that you need to run this thing and, and spin up Docker. And I think um, Elastic Beanstalk on Amazon, they're doing the same thing. So everyone's kind of moving the primitive from source code, which is a little harder to deal with, or a little bit harder to kind of express what your dependencies were. It was really hard to say, get push this thing, and then also I want you to, depending on what OS I'm on, I want you to install these additional packages that I'm going to need. Mm-hmm. So with the Docker container, you can kind of abstract all of that, do whatever you need to do in your own starter process, and just give these vendors, whether it's virtual machines or pass, a Docker container. So I think people are starting to converge on this idea that RPMs and source code isn't the right way to pass applications around. Maybe we can use something like this Docker container format to be the kind of the normalization across all deployment methodologies. And now we just have one way of doing it. So now it's truly portable. So I think that's kind of the first step. And once we get there, now you can do things like, well, since it's a container, you can go ahead and write to the disk space because now we know you're only writing within your your little true root there. Yeah, you've got okay. that little atomic bit of isolation and the yeah. security boundaries between the different... Really standard ways of cleaning it up, really standard ways of using utilizing C groups and namespaces to make sure that you don't break out of that container. And now you know what to expect. If the container works a certain way on your laptop, most providers right now are making sure the same things will work out in the cloud or whatever solution you deploy to. Yeah. Uh, so we've got all of these services that are letting me pass some Docker images, right? And they're they're scaling them up for me. But where do I put my Docker images, and how do I define them in a way that I can tie into those services effectively? Yeah. So some of them have their own like native solution where you push directly to their internal reg- registry. So one thing when you talk about Docker images is is kind of good to know is like there's usually some registry involved, right? So if you're an organization and you're making these Docker images, a lot of times when people start out they have like one host, and on that host is where they do their Docker build. And that's where all your images live initially, on a local repository. What normally you want to do at scale, if you've got like five nodes or you want to make sure that your fellow developer can pull down the same Docker image to use, you're going to involve some Docker registry. So the default Docker registry is the Docker Hub, right? The Docker guys run um, their hosted product. They have support for private and public right. offerings. Uh, CoreOS just recently purchased Quay.io, which has a very similar concept of the Docker Hub. Um, where you can have private registries, public registries, and you can also run it behind your firewall. So once you have this concept of a registry, that's where you really want to check in your, your images, right? Okay, cool. And you can tag those images with semantic versioning if you're into that. Some people just use latest. So those, version, those registries end up being kind of like GitHub for Docker images uh, at a larger scale? Yeah, I think that's probably one of the biggest advantages to using Docker in, in general. So I think LXC was out well before Docker was, but it never had a concept of sharing and discoverability. And you're just right. Like when Git came out, I don't think it was as popular until there was like a GitHub. So you can actually share things and name things. And had this concept yeah, of things. Yeah, and it had this concept of a namespace. And I think Docker did that early on. So when you actually look at a container's name, it's usually like Kelsey Hightower Redis. So that kind of gave you a namespace, like who built it, and then the repository was implied that it was the Docker Hub. But if you're using, like, say, your own registry, you may see the registry's you know, domain name slash Kelsey Hightower slash Redis. Okay. So that was just built into Docker from the very beginning, this concept that they will be shared within the organization and with other people around the world. I think that's kind of one of the biggest benefits of Docker today. Yeah. And that really simplifies the task and go where, well, just like looking at GitHub repos. 
and trying to run their samples and their tests? Yeah, so I think you're right, exactly. So if you think about traditionally how we tell people to get software in the open source space, like the SourceForge days, <laughs> it was like grab the repository. If you were lucky, there was a README, and the README would say, hey, look, install GCC, install all of these things so you can just do a build. Line options. Yeah, and you're just like, you know what, abandon ship, right? Yeah. So sometimes we strictly pick projects that were easier to install. And, you know, I think the bar at that point in time was if you had an OS package, you were doing well, right? It's like, hey, good, there's a Debian package. I'll just do app get install. Yeah. But it didn't necessarily solve the full puzzle for you because there could be like, oh, you need these additional assets mm -hmm. that don't come bundled. Um, it it, it kind of got arbitrary. wasn't updated. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't updated in a while. So what you saw on master was not what you can get from the repository. So you kind of had this delayed... Be, oh, they fixed my bug, and then now you got to try to roll your own deck. <laughs> um, and with Docker containers, now you've kind of built the build process really close to the repository. So it's not make install or rake build. Now you have like Docker build, and you know the thing that you're going to get? You can just run it, and it will just work, right? Everything included will be in that bundle. You don't have to worry about it anymore. And in those Docker instances, one of the things that I found kind of interesting is that, like, and you mentioned this a bit before with the with the binary packages, but those binary packages can be versioned, right? So if I if I say Kelsey Hightower has this really awesome Redis cluster set up, then I can take that as a baseline and kind of extend that on my own. Um, and how does that work with the the Docker binaries? So. Yeah, so I think um, I think you're talking about like you know using Docker images as a base image as a starting point for your mm -hmm. own. Yeah, I think they've kind of turned infrastructure into like reusable libraries in a way, right? Yeah. I think that was kind of the goal as when we, we talked about infrastructure as code. I don't know if you guys remember that movement, but this is like when Puppet and Chef really kind of changed the landscape of how we kind of managed infrastructure. And the idea there is that we would provide reusable components like, hey, here's a module for setting up Nginx. Here's a module for setting up Apache. But the problem is that those modules are so loosely defined, the interfaces between them weren't very clean, and you still had to bring a lot of glue code to the table. And I think that Docker container does exactly what you said. Maybe you like where someone started out with their Redis container. You can grab it and then start a new Docker file, say, you know, I'm going to use that as my starting point. And then down here in my Docker file, I'm going to actually change the configuration a little bit. Maybe I want to twist a few things around for my own needs, and I'm just going to rename it. So now it's my Redis container built from that guy's Redis container. Mm -hmm. So you truly have this reusable model across the stack. And that also made it really easy for people to build things like, hey, I need a container to build my Golang projects. You go on Docker yeah. Hub and there is Google Golang suite, the guys that produce Go, I'm going to use their container. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, and also, like just to, to point out one of the other cool things that I found with Docker was uh, when you when you take that base library, say even if you just say the the base OS plus the the mods that I like to have on my base server instances, uh, when I use that across seven different Docker instances, it downloads it once and it stores that that raw binary once and it reuses it each time you spin up a Docker instance. So yeah, that was really nice that they had the concept of layers um, in in the mix in the early on, and you can tell they come from a, a pass. They were a pass provider first, right? right? So they had to be as efficient as possible because they were running the pass on the cloud where every dollar counts, wasting space counts, and you want this concept of fast builds, right? You know, we're, Amazon kind of set the bar pretty high for a, your expectation of getting a unit of compute, right? You, you know, a minute or two, you get a whole machine ready to go and ready to execute. And in their world, it's like, well, as we, long as we get these base images down on disk, then we only need people's layers, your changes. So your application code, maybe your config file. 
and we can allow you to basically do new releases in seconds. And I think that's like one of the biggest game changers, right? Once you have that base oh, image yeah. everywhere, now new builds, experiments are now in seconds. Um, and one big payoff I've seen people do in the testing front, everyone has gotten to the point where they're running unit tests, right? You're checking mm-hmm. your code, unit tests, run in 10 seconds, everyone runs a unit test. But one thing people don't do is integration testing, right? Most people say, well, you know, you can mock out the database. You mark out all the things that are actually hard to do. And now with Docker, it's easy to say, you know what? When I check in my code, I want to spin up 88 of these containers that provide the true solar infrastructure that I have and then run all my integration tests against the real thing and then shut it all down. And Docker just made it really cheap to do that. That's, that's some pretty sweet automation stuff. Yeah. I know I've been looking to do that for years and years, and obviously we with virtual machines. I keep going back to that. Trying to do that with virtual machines gets pretty pretty scary at times. And you know, one of the things managing IP addresses and managing DHCP configurations and virtual machines and the naming conflicts and things like that. Um, I'm imagining you run into a lot of that when you scale Docker instances out across, multiple, like say, 88 instances of Docker machines. How do I keep all of that stuff? How do I keep track of all of that and make my apps and design my apps in a way that I can take advantage of that scaling and, and that distribution without <laughs> exploding mentally? Yeah, it's funny when I think about it. Like Heroku was like the king of the hill. They, you know, you know, this is their style of doing things where you spin up a machine and this concept of a twelve-factor app where it doesn't matter what your IP is, it doesn't matter what your port is, just assume that you're going to get traffic routed to you. And Docker kind of took that concept and just turned it into something everyone can use, whether you're a Heroku or not. So I think now that we have these tools, and I think this is a clear sign that developers have gotten involved, <laughs> right? Because when ops people build the tools, we kind of automate what we have at our disposal. You say I have SendMail, and you say I have Apache, well, I'm going to glue those things up. I may not necessarily change it, throw it all away and start over. You know, being a developer myself for a number of years, you just, you know, it's okay to reinvent the wheel sometimes. Like, you know what? I want to build my own SMTP server. It's like, wow, really? You just have that much time? (laughs) And I think Docker is really the, what we see is the product of really developers and operations people really saying, you know what? We need a solution that everyone can operate without having 10 years of system administration experience. Yeah, yeah. The command lines are usually pretty, pretty clean. At Visitrix, we offer this podcast. We also run user groups local to the Portland, Oregon area and do screencasts on a variety of technical topics. If you're really enjoying the show and you want to support us, there's a variety of ways you can do that. Obviously, there's the standard donations. We're always looking for sponsors and and donations to the cause. Uh, But additionally, we can always use more suggestions or volunteers to provide content to any of those venues, whether it's podcast or video interviews or coming to speak at the the local user group for us. We sponsor the the Portland meetup called Portland Avant-Garde Software. And the theme of our meetup is any latest and greatest bleeding edge technology trends. We've got one coming up here soon that's focused on the cloud-based technologies, kind of a follow-on to this podcast today. And we're lining up additional speakers for that and always looking for more topics going forward. So if you have some ideas, feel free to reach out. The email address, admin, A-D-M-I-N, at visidrex.com.
And so like when I'm setting up these massive configurations, uh, I know one of the things that you've been talking about a lot in the, in the conversation we had initially at the Go Meetup was this thing called Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. And I only have a vague idea of what it does, but I, I know that it, it it's in the similar space. You mentioned Fleet earlier. I've heard of Wharf, which was another early Docker kind of container management system. Uh, I, was, I was reading something that was posted about Stampede. Um, and, and then we've got the other ones that you've been talking about, Puppet and Chef and you know, like Vagrant, all of these things to spin up virtual machines. So uh, how does that space lay out and, and what is Kubernetes and, and where are the, the synergy, which of those things play well together and which things are competing for space? Yeah, so I think um, a lot of us are new to this whole world of, of what we call a scheduler, right? A lot of people confuse a scheduler with orchestration. Um, I think okay. a lot of times a scheduler does some orchestration to do its job, but it's not necessarily the thing you think about at the surface. So if we talk about orchestration for a minute, you have five machines and usually the scheduler is you, the human, right? <laughs> you say that this machine, A, has enough disk space to run my database. So you run some tool and you point it to that machine by hostname, database.example.com. I'm going to give you this particular manifest or profile, or I'm going to run these set of commands on you, and you will run my database. And you'll set up some Nagios alerts, page of duty, to alert you when that goes down. And you, the scheduler, will jump back into action and bring it back up, right? Or you may have some scripts that do it. So in the orchestration world, the human being is still normally the scheduler, right? I've done that before, so I'm I'm laughing on this end. (laughs) Yeah, and and the human being actually is a very intelligent scheduler. You know when there's a network partition, maybe because you're looking at another console, and you say, wow, that network is down. I'm going to move all the units of work to where the network is available. So you can actually react, and it's very, you know, it's a it's pretty decent experience, and we are all used to this. And we built a bunch of tools to make that easier and faster. So we built the puppets, we built the chefs, we built all these tools to make human orchestration or human scheduling easier to do, and maybe even get it down to where the human still needs to push a button. So that's very host-centric, right? We I call that host uh, You need to know the host name, right? You, okay. you give them all names, and people go into detail about the names after Pokemon characters, that sort of thing. <laughs> But then when you move into this world of scheduling, then you start treating the whole data center as one big operating system, right? When you, when you deploy an app on your, on your Linux host today, you don't really care what CPU it gets scheduled to. You don't really care what section of memory gets allocated when the malloc gets called. You just know that your process will run, and the kernel that has a scheduler it will take care of where things actually get mapped to physical resources. I was thinking on a box. Of exactly that that same kind of concept with thread scheduling and, it, and exactly. So, and we trust the kernel at this point. No one sits there and tries to worry about CPU affinity. Like, hey, I have probably I have a shaky core out of four. Well, sometimes I do. Well, I, I get into the C level, low level C stuff, and and hyper optimize things. But it, it's yeah, but usually, usually a time. Usually suck. you don't <laughs> care which core, right? You don't have like your you know what core number three is yeah. my favorite core on this system. Yeah. I'm going to make sure I always do CPU affinity to always land on this core. <laughs> right? We, you don't really care anymore. All the cores are basically weighted yeah, in yeah, your yeah. book, right? Yeah, so sure. when we talk about Kubernetes, um, Kubernetes is very much the same thing but for the entire data center. Let's stop treating the host as special. The hosts become our cores. They, they can compute stuff. And what Kubernetes' job is to be is that kernel for the entire data center. So when you interact with that, you basically say Kubernetes as a system I want you to launch these programs. In, in Kubernetes sense, it's a Docker container. We talked about that earlier, of Docker becoming the primitive for the static binary now. So you say, Kubernetes, I want five web hosts 
and I want two database servers. And what Kubernetes provides is like, you know what, I'll figure out the best machines for the job based on um, some primitives. It could be maybe I'll make sure that none of these things conflict. I don't, I don't put the same web machines on the same host because you want high availability. Maybe I can use some type of metadata to say that this will go to a host that fulfills these requirements. So these are all scheduling. These are all decisions that the scheduler can make. And you want that to be automated as possible. So you, the new front door becomes an API. You may have a JSON descriptive that says, I want these six Docker containers, and I want these three databases, and you deploy them. And what Kubernetes adds to the mix is an ability to find each other. So once you have a scheduler, the next thing is like, how do you find things depending on where it went? So on a single right. system, it's really easy. You almost count on localhost, and then if you know <laughs> the port, then you're there. So Kubernetes, by default, gives you the same ability by bringing in the service proxy. So if you deploy five of your front-end web servers, and you say that they live listen on port 8080, and let's say you have 10 servers and only five of them get, of course, um, one of your instances of your web application, the way Kubernetes works is it puts a service proxy on every machine. So if you hit host number nine that's maybe not running the container, it will proxy to one of the nodes that is through this concept of a label query. So in Kubernetes world is you can have a label on one of these web instances called web. And whenever someone wants to hit web, you can give it a service port that maps to uh, one of these labels. And you can do a label query. So if, a, if someone comes in on port 8080, that maps to a lookup for web. And it will just find one of these web servers running somewhere in the network and then respond back with a list of machines and just do a basic load balance, you know, round robin algorithm for you. So this kind of gives you this illusion that the same thing that the Linux kernel has been doing for you. You don't really care about network. You don't really care about where it lands. You just know that there's a set of criteria, meaning maybe I need this much CPU, this much memory for this thing. Mm -hmm. And you let Kubernetes, the scheduler, sort it out for you. And then you just hit things on the cluster. And it sounds almost like if I'm building a localized application on my machine, and I, and I spin up my virtual machine running CoreOS locally, and then I spin up some Docker instances in there, and I, I run Kubernetes, uh, I can run locally all of those things and get them all connected on my local dev box and deploy it here and test it. And, and now when I push it up into a single machine cluster, it runs just like on my local box and everything connects up. But it's instead of using direct port mappings, I'm using these Kubernetes abstractions of, of the, the proxies. And now I'm using the ETCD configuration distribution mechanism. So I, I, I depend on those things. And now when I want to throw more and more boxes into the mix, does my application just kind of magically start scaling at that point? Yeah, so if we talk about some of the primitives in Kubernetes, there's this primitive of a replication controller. Um, and maybe before we get to replication controller, we talk about a pod. So okay. usually Google gives us a white paper, right? They say, hey, here's this thing called uh, MapReduce. And then we study it, and then we start building tools. So we end up with Hadoop. Then they give us another paper, and it tells about um, eventually consistent data stores, and then we go and build Cassandra, and all these things, right? And in this case, they actually gave us a reference implementation. They, they wrote some code this time. And they said, instead of giving people a white paper about how they've been doing containers, they've been running containers for a decade, right? 10 years, um, their claims are, and I'm pretty sure they're believable, 2 billion deployments a week, <laughs> right? And that's just production stuff, not necessary testing. So they have experience, right? And a lot of times, the reason why we like Google's white papers, they're all based on experience, right. not just pure theory. And they've ran into the issues of what won't work, 
And then they've done this stuff at tremendous scale that none of us will probably ever have to worry about anytime soon. Um, and so when they produce Kubernetes, they have this concept of a pod. And when you think about a pod and you're building an application, sometimes you want um, co-supporting services next to you. So if you're a web application, you may want a memcache instance right next to you on localhost in the same port space um, because you plan to cache things there. Yeah, you don't want to pay that network latency cost for something that you're going to be accessing all the time. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, in those cases, deploying a, a, a dedicated container for each of those co-located services doesn't really make sense sometimes. Sometimes you do want them to be in the same namespace. You may have a backup job for your database that does a database dump. And in that case, you may want that process right next to your application in the same file system to be able to do those dumps. Putting those in different containers and then trying to wire those things up later, it's just unnecessary overhead. So Google introduces this concept of a pod. And you can say, you know what, for this application, it needs this data dumper, and it also needs this caching instance to be co-located. So in Kubernetes world, your primitive is a pod, and a pod okay. is a collection of Docker containers. So when you express one of these pods, and if you look at it, it's like a adjacent description of, I need these three things, and they go together, okay. and then they will be deployed together. And then you have this concept of a network pod that goes with each of these things. So the network pod's job would be, I'm going to get the IP address, and you guys are going to share a port space on this one IP, so that way you can address the pod from a single IP versus cool. trying to stitch together four IPs. So once you have a pod, now we can start talking about this unit that really makes up your application. Right, your application isn't complete without its, its co-helpers right next yeah, to it. exactly. So now you have these pods, you can say to Kubernetes, I want to have a replication controller. And the replication controller's job is to say, you said you want three of these things. My job is to make sure that there's always three of these pods running somewhere within the cluster. And ideally, you can adjust that state. So what you're doing is you're saying, I'm declaring that this is what a replication controller looks like, has these pods, has these number of pods. We push it into a cluster, and we also give it a label so we can connect it later with service ports and things like that. So once we give it there, and you say it's three running, and you notice one day that, you know what, I really need five of those. Then you don't need to update some metadata. You know what, instead of three, make it five. Then Kubernetes will go out in the world and try to find more homes for the new instances. And it has this recollection process in a continuous loop to make sure it's always true. If one node drops off the map, it'll bring, it'll just move your workload somewhere else. Cool. So if it expands too big, it'll shrink it down to five. If it gets too low, it'll bring it back. Um, so that's your replication controller. So that's your question. If you bring new hardware in and you, everything's running fine, nothing will happen. But if you turn the dial up on what the state of the cluster should be, Kubernetes will definitely start scheduling things to the new nodes. That's pretty cool. I wasn't even thinking of the of the case of actually live expanding that, uh, that set of nodes, but that it can handle that is, is really awesome. And if you think about the fundamental use cases in, in when, you, when you talk to the Google guys, you know, they talk about this stuff in public, is that if you have a million machines, you're just going to throw a random number out there. If yeah. you have a million machines and they're all only executing at 60%, your, your company's losing money, right? right? And if your index company is trying to index the entire internet and you have 40% spare capacity, your goal would be to try to make sure that all those machines are pushed to the edge as much as possible. You might want to achieve something like 90%. Yeah. So you can imagine a world in Kubernetes where you allocate bandwidth for the things that need to run, like Gmail needs to be up, Google Maps needs to be up, but what if you have a few index jobs? So you're a developer and you write the index code what you want to do is say, you know what? I only need about 
100,000 of these things running. But if there's spare capacity, 200,000 would be nice. Yeah, yeah. And you you let the scheduler. Yeah, and you let the scheduler do that. So where everyone's at home sleeping and the capacity drops by 40%, well, we know someone that could actually use that capacity. Let's start bringing in some of these index jobs and start pushing them around the cluster where there's spare capacity. That's awesome. If you've made it this far, you may be just the kind of partner we're looking for. Our approach to product development is simple. Build a team of highly competent people who are great at their domain and work closely with them to build amazing products. By partnering with us, you get a hardcore development team that stays connected to the very latest trends in technology, as well as access to suites of both private and public utilities integrated by the very devs that built them. What are we looking for from you? In order to maintain our dedication to technology, we depend on our partners to bring us expertise in business, marketing, financing, and any other areas necessary to make your product idea a success. If you're looking for a true partner to help you realize your technology vision, then I urge you to contact us by email at admin at visidrix.com. That's V-I-Z-I-D-R-I-X dot com. So we can spin up all of these things dynamically. We can add clusters into the mix. We can take clusters out. Uh, I guess the one of the last questions I would have then at, that, at this point is, uh, where is it going from here? And what else is left to do? What is the state of, of things? Is this usable today? Kind of the, what is the direction of all of this stuff? Yeah, it's funny. Um, I used to joke with my buddies a lot. Like, we're going back to mainframe days, <laughs> right? Where, you know... I always tell people this story, um, and I was in a meeting with, I used to work for a financial institution, and financial institutions have like brand new mainframes, like mainframes that were built this year. So these aren't like dinosaurs that we're thinking of, these relics. These are like brand new things that are still the king of the house. They're just so expensive that most people don't don't buy them. They don't necessarily have um, justification for the workload. But when you have a mainframe, they just don't go down, right? Like these things go down like once every six or seven years. I mean, you can actually walk into these things and pop in a hard drive and, and, and they self-heal themselves. So the nice thing about the mainframe is when you talk to a developer for a mainframe, he, he thinks about it the way we think about Kubernetes today. He puts a piece of workload in there and the mainframe has enough compute, in his mind, infinite compute resources, infinite networking bandwidth. And he doesn't worry about these things. He just drops it into the to the to the the unit of computing he does his thing and i think the the goal of where we're going now is that we don't want to talk about physical machines anymore not if that's not your primary job right so if you're a service provider that's your job you rack machines you you, you keep them on the rack and you know all those things but you as a developer you just write code mm-hmm. that can process bytes rearrange the bytes and put them somewhere permanently absolutely as a software development company that's kind of what we we do and that's what we preach is we go in and we look for partners and we say look we're really good at building software and you know people like you are really good at at doing ops and there's other people are really good at managing infrastructure and i look for key partnerships with people who you know we're really good at selling products Uh, we're really good at uh, building electric bikes or whatever it is and and you know let's synergize and each do what we do well and it lets me focus on, on my core competencies and it lets them focus on their core competencies. Yeah, and we've already seen a, a touch of this already. I mean, the cloud is true today. Like, most people aren't buying servers. Like, you probably haven't had to deal with a PO to buy some physical servers right. and rack them anywhere. 
And that was a horror story for many startups when they first started. Got to find some infrastructure and some gear. So you've already kind of forgot about that part as far as your day-to-day expectations for running your business. Yeah, the barrier of entry is way lower, right? Yeah, but we're still in this world where you have to worry about the host name. If you're using Heroku, it kind of goes away a little bit, but it's not quite as flexible as you really want it. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily have enough transparency into how scheduling decisions are made. You don't have the ability to really tune things in a way that kind of makes sense for you. So I think what we'll see is Kubernetes is going to give you the ability and more advanced schedulers on the horizon that will say, let's just forget about where it's running. So let's say you have a master instance or a master cluster. It could be spread across all the cloud vendors, right? I can see this cloud thing becoming real estate. You know, who has compute unit and people will be racing to just have more compute capacity than anyone else. And then what you care about is just paying the bill, right? As long as I keep, it's like your internet bill at home. You just come home, you jump on the network, you don't really think about it, right? That's just taken care of for you. I think computing is going in the same direction. You just want to schedule things. I have, if it's still a Docker container, have this Docker container. But even then, that primitive is too low level when you think about it. Here's my app. My app has a descriptor about how it needs to be deployed. I want you to build that. And I need about this much capacity. Like, I'm getting this much traffic. And if you can afford it, if my traffic spikes, I want my compute bill to spike. And when my traffic drops, I want my compute bill to go down, kind of like your water bill. You want yeah. to pay for usage. And I think we're getting close. So it will be like, hey, just pushing something into the thing. Yeah. But I think what would be nice is that you can have the thing at your house, right? You can buy three physical machines, plug them in there, and install all of this stuff. Maybe you drop Kubernetes on CoreOS right there on the three machines, and then you're done touching it, right? It updates itself with the automatic updates. And the only thing you do is just interact with it by just pushing to an API. Mm-hmm. And I think that is like, you know, we got to have that part too. We don't want to get in a world <laughs> where everyone has to pay to compute and you can never invest in infrastructure on your own. Right. So I think that's where we're going. I saw this really, in my mind, I'm thinking of this really cool thing where you've got those high-frequency traders that are always looking for the best deal. And, and, and I'm almost thinking, in your analogy, if I can do my compute anywhere, you know, I have a real-time processing algorithm that says, you know, within these constraints, just dynamically swap my stuff around on an hour-by-hour basis. Or and you whatever. see it already. I've actually seen people that do cloud at scale, right? Um, maybe Netflix is our best example, where you, you, know, you, you basically are starting to pre-allocate by getting reserved instances, and you can sell them back, you know, depending on demand. And you can also take certain workloads and throw them on DigitalOcean for $5, right? And so you know what? I can put some stuff on DigitalOcean. You know, Google's having a good deal on this particular type of network, or it may all be about data locality, yeah. right? If you're dealing with a specific vendor and they're hosted out of Amazon, it may make sense for you to put your workload on Amazon to cut down on some of the network latency around trips. So we're already starting to see wow. this strategy wow. where people are simply putting things where the provider is. Um, so I think that's definitely a thing. I mean, we see our iPhones today, like your iPhone is very much that world. End users do not toy around with an iOS app. They go on their phone, the app store, they hit the button, it sucks down, it's deployed, it's configured, and it's ready to go out of the box. And we're starting to see that now for even our server-side applications. Yeah. Wow, that's really cool. Uh, this has been great. I think we've covered everything that I wanted to talk about in, in pretty good depth, and uh, it's been really fun having you over here and, and catching up again. I look forward to the next one. Uh, do you guys have anything else you wanted to say before we close out? or? No, I think it's a very exciting time to kind of be in IT right now. Oh, man. It's I think so a lot nice. of people are re-energized. And I think, you know, I think the whole world was burnt out. Um, I was definitely, I was at a DevOps Days talk a couple of days ago in Boston. And 
I finally figured out what like DevOps is, and, and, and I described it as the biggest group therapy session ever. <laughs> right, where you know the whole industry got fed up with you know the tools we had to use, the processes, and it didn't feel like it was getting any better. And I think the new tools that have been arriving, even going back to Puppet and Chef days, have kind of given us some new hope that we can actually automate yeah. a lot of this crap away. And once Docker arrived, and now some of these advanced schedulers, it looks like it's about to disappear and still give us the control that we want. So I think everyone's really excited about technology again, and we can just start building cool things. Yeah, you know, change and things up with the procedures that you go about. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I know we're we're totally energized about the whole thing too. It's it's been you know one of the main reasons that we we spun up in January and kind of jumped off that shelf and to do our own thing, just so that we could chase those kinds of problems because it's just such a cool time to be in technology right now. Thank you very much for coming out. Man.